Happy Easter. We stand today in the third day of the octave of Easter, which means we stand in the eyes of the church still in Easter Sunday. Over these eight days, the church reads through the full series of resurrection appearances of the Lord, in fact, in Scripture. The longest section of the Gospels are the Passion Narratives. The second longest section is the accounting of the resurrection appearances of the Lord. And so over these days where we celebrate this great event, we recognize one mere day is not enough to contain it. We need the fullness of eight. The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to John. Mary Magdalene stayed outside the tomb weeping, and as she wept, she bent over into the tomb and saw two angels in white sitting there, one at the head and one at the feet where the body of Jesus had been. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken my Lord, and I don't know where they laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus there, but did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? She thought it was the gardener and said to him, Sir, if you carried him away, tell me where you laid him, and I will take him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabuni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Stop holding on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and tell them, I am going to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and then reported what he had told her. The Gospel of the Lord. There is a temptation with the great details of our faith to speak about them in safe generalities. We say Jesus died for sins, Jesus was crucified, Jesus rose again. And note how easy it is to say those things in a way that doesn't involve me and that doesn't involve you directly. Stated that way, what we have is merely information, merely information about Jesus but the gospel has very little to do with mere information. We celebrate, in fact, a tremendous reality that did, in fact, happen. That is true. But the real question is, how well do I understand the impact of the feast that we celebrate today, the resurrection of the Lord? And that is the very center of the preaching of the early church, that it is this reality that changes absolutely everything 
about the world, and about ourselves. Everything is different because of this. Up until that moment, none had ever conquered death. Up until that moment, the majority of the world had no notion of resurrection. There were vague ideas of life after death, but a mere shadow of what the church proclaims. Nothing like its fullness. And to say suddenly that the bonds of death have been broken and one has left the tomb means if I accept that truth, everything I know about the world is now wrong because everyone lived in a world where that didn't happen. Everyone lived in a world where that was not part of human reality. And so this preaching of the early church, and we hear in our first reading today the very essence of the original proclamation of the gospel in St. Peter's words on Pentecost Sunday. Note how simple, blunt, and direct they are. And note how like an arrow they are targeted directly at the hearts of his hearers. Gathered in Jerusalem for the great feast day, the building has shaken, the apostles spill out, filled with the Holy Spirit. The crowd has gathered and Peter speaks and he says to them, know you this, let the whole house of Israel know this. God has raised him up and made him Messiah and Lord, this Jesus whom you crucified. Note how direct that is. Not Jesus who they crucified. Not Jesus who was crucified. This Jesus whom you crucified. The one that you killed, the one that you crucified, the one that you rejected, the one that you pushed away, God has made his own. And note how in speaking that way, Peter frames the proclamation in a way that involves his hearers and what happens with Jesus and in a way that also calls into question the very nature of their own relationship with God, a God to whom they thought they were being faithful. It is a proclamation that is exceedingly dangerous in its truth. It is a proclamation that is incredibly aggressive in the way it cuts through the safe generalities with which we flatter ourselves thinking we are better than we are. This Jesus whom you crucified. And note that Peter addresses these words to the whole house of Israel. Not just those who were there on Good Friday but to those who weren't as well. To those who came to celebrate the feast day and in speaking that way, he is speaking about everyone. 
that everyone in some level is affected by and involved in what happens to Jesus. That every single one of us crucified him. That every single one of us in our own way has rejected him. That every single one of us in our own way is the cause of his death. Otherwise, it means nothing to say he died for our sins, which means mine and yours. And in speaking that way, then, the issue is this involves you inescapably. And you can turn your back on this, but it doesn't make you less involved. It is a reality that impinges upon you without your consent because it comes with divine authority. This is what God has done. And the Lord does not consult us before he acts. This is why those hearers are suddenly cut to the heart, Scripture says. They realize the blunt truth of what Peter is pressing before them that everything they thought about themselves and their own spiritual state, that everything they thought about the world and everything they thought about God needs to be reconsidered in the light of this. The stone rejected by the builder has become the head of the corner, the cornerstone. The one that you cast aside is the one that God chose. And if that is true, what does it say about my values? If that is true, what does it say about my morality? If that is true, what does that say about me? And yet within it, within it is something exceedingly remarkable. Because it is not merely a statement of see how guilty you are. It is recognizing that, do something. And so they come to Peter because they don't know what it is. What can we do? And note what he says. Repent of your sins. Declare your willingness to become different in the light of the will of God. And then come and be baptized and receive salvation. And the point of the forcefulness of the proclamation is not to make the hearer feel bad, although that can happen. It is precisely to make the, the, the one who hears feel and know the truth so that he has a chance of responding to it. And that response is a call to mercy, a call to forgiveness, a call to life, a call to freedom. The early church is remarkable in his proclamation. It's not simply a matter of Peter standing in front of those guys saying, yeah, and God made him the Lord. Don't you feel really stupid now? Rather, it's we've made this mistake. And yet he died because we make mistakes like this. And so now there's a choice. Live in the mistake or move forward and be healed. And it's this reality, the fact that we are personally involved in what happens, that sits at the beautiful heart of this marvelous gospel reading we have today, the, 
justly famous Nole Me Tangeri account in St. John's Gospel, the Do Not Touch Me Gospel. We begin with Mary Magdalene, who we heard on Easter Sunday discovered the empty tomb, ran to the apostles and brought them back to the tomb. The apostles have left, but she hasn't. And she's weeping. Note how tenderly the gospel speaks of her. She stays by the tomb, weeping. She will not leave it. And this weeping is deep and mysterious. And in her tears, she looks into the tomb and discovers it's not empty now. When she first looked in, it was empty. There were only the burial wrappings left down. But now she looks in and she sees two angels. And in seeing the angels seated where the body of Jesus was placed, the tears continue to stream down her eyes. The angels bring her no joy, nor do the angels bring her any fear. There's something else that has mastered her heart. And so the angels say to her, woman, why are you weeping? And finally she names the cause. I do not know where he is. Know what she doesn't say. She doesn't say, I don't know what happened. She doesn't say, I don't know who did this. I don't know where he is implying she's not interested in information about what happened. She's looking for him. And we see next, as the story unfolds, one of the most remarkable incidents in Scripture. She turns away from the angels. That doesn't happen in Scripture. When an angel is there, the angel commands everyone's attention. And Mary turns her back on the angels because she didn't come looking for an angel. And curiously, she's not even interested in the words of the angels. She's only interested in him. And her heart will not be satisfied until it knows where he is so that her heart can pull her body there. What a remarkably powerful statement of longing for the Lord this is. She's not looking for a blessing. She's looking for a person. She's not interested in news or information. She's interested in being with him. She's not willing to settle even for the consolation of two angels. And let's be honest, how often in Scripture does somebody get visited by two? And we see here that all of these things, the empty tomb is not enough. Two angels is not enough. Because she knows where her heart needs to be. And then we have this wonderful moment of as she turns away from the angels, it is not a turning away from heaven. It is a turning toward Jesus. 
And note how beautiful that is. It's a turning toward Jesus because that's what's guiding the movement of the heart, not some lesser thing. And so she turns away even from the great but lesser consolation of angels, and in doing so, she turns directly toward the greater one who is the object of her desire. And it's the Lord who again says to her, why are you weeping? And now her answer becomes different. But note these multiple questions from heaven. Woman, why are you weeping? The way heaven very gently and very slowly asks her to clarify, not for heaven, but for herself, what the real source of her grief is, what the real object of her desire is. First, she says, I don't know where they've taken him, and that pains me. But turning now to this one who is speaking to her, whom she does not yet recognize through her tears, she says, if you're the one who took him, then bring me to him and I will take him. Note again the insistence. I must be with him and I need him with me. I must be with him. I need him with me. And as she says, I will take him, Jesus then says her name. Note how marvelous that is. She declares her desire to take Jesus in whatever form she finds him. Alive, dead, however, I must have him. However he will be near me, I must have him. And as she declares that marvelous desire, the Lord then speaks her name and her eyes are open and she knows who it is that is before her. And with remarkable joy, she kneels at his feet, she greets him, and she embraces him. And then we have that marvelous element of Jesus who really is tough sometimes. You know, the poor woman's been through all of this. She's delighted. She has the object of her heart's desire right here. She gets to see him and touch him again. And what does the Lord lead with? Oh, stop clinging to me. And in speaking that way, he is not shoving her away. He is now saying to her, now that we've clarified your desire, we have to take it a step further. Because the way you will hold on to me, the way you will keep me, the way you will take me is not the way you think. For I will ascend. And I will take up my place in heaven, but you will still have me. But it won't be this way. It's a remarkable moment where the Lord is not telling Mary her desire is wrong. He's not telling her she's doing something wrong or bad. But he is saying, and now I will give you a greater way of knowing me, a greater way of having me. Because you won't merely have me to touch with your hand, you will have my life in your heart. You will not merely have me with you on this earth, you will have me watching over you from heaven each day and every day. 
What a remarkable moment this is. And it is out of this reality where the Lord says, I am going and so are you because you can't stay here because I'm not staying here. This is not the garden where we will be together in. There's a greater garden, a different garden, an eternal garden where we will be together. Not this earthly garden. So I will leave this garden and you will leave this garden. And I will ascend to my glory, to my father and your father. And the implication where I go, oh, you're coming. You're coming. But your way there is out into the world. Find my brothers and you bring this to them. You bring this to them. And then you will all be at that place where I ascend. But note how wonderful this is. It is this level of the heart saying, whatever has happened with Jesus, it involves me in some way. That Mary acts out of and lives out of. And the same insistence that whatever goes on with Jesus involves me and you as well, out of which St. Peter speaks on Pentecost Sunday. There are no disinterested observers, only those who fool themselves into thinking that. Because what happens to Jesus affects every single man, woman, and child that has ever lived and ever will live on this planet. We're all involved in some way because the Lord has come for all of us. And it's really good. It's really good to have this reading in particular outdoors today. This reading is different indoors because of the setting. We get to be in a garden to hear about what happened in that garden. Note how cool that is. And that's a reminder that the idea of the garden runs through sacred scripture from the very beginning. Because in the garden, in the garden where paradise and life were, Eve reached out her hand trying to take the things of God for herself and in a garden received death where there should have been life. And then we have this garden. And in the center of this garden is a tomb, a place of death. And in this garden, there's another woman, Mary Magdalene, who isn't interested in the things of God. She's interested in Jesus. Note how wonderful this is. And she stretches out her hand not to take what isn't hers to take. She stretches out her hand to him who died and rose for her. And so here in a garden that had been filled with death, she stretches out her hand and finds her heart and her spirit filled with life. What a great mystery this is. And in just a couple minutes, we're going to come forward in this garden and stretch out our hands too, because he's here. And we will stretch out our hands to him whom Mary Magdalene desired with such great love. We do not stretch out our hands to an angel. We do not stretch out our hands to any lesser blessing. We stretch out our hands to him. And note, 
There's no way we can do that if we're not involved. Amen.